0: go James chapter 3. We've made it to James chapter 3, guys. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room with little racks beneath the seats. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that's incredibly simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things, the, the highest of the awesome reasons is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by knowing Jesus, filtered through the lens of knowing Jesus. Uh, And so if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in your heart and life, uh, then do the math problem in your head. Press into the word, and God will use it for His good and glorious purposes, uh, which are always your good and glorious purposes as well. All right, so we are back in the letter of James this week, uh, week number thirteen uh, by my count. Uh, we took off uh, last week off. Jeff, I think wisely, uh, gave us a, uh, a more j- a gentle breather. All right, uh, James is a little a little tough sometimes. Uh, he's got he's got a lot of my brothers for us, and uh, he, well, he, we got another one today. So. Uh, we had a good week off last week, but uh, it's time to kind of pick it back up, uh, dig back into uh, the, the the weightiness of the book of James. And so uh, maybe the question is appropriate this morning. What is the book of James? Like maybe you're new here, maybe you're new to the church thing or the Bible thing altogether. What is the book of James? Well, James is a general letter written to all Christians that had been scattered out from Jerusalem into all these varying regions uh, because of persecution that kind of welled up in the early church. Uh, We think it's written in the early to mid-40s A.D. All right, uh, by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, And this would place it as one of the first things, if not maybe the first thing, written in the kind of historical timeline of the New Testament. Uh, The Gospels were written a little bit later than that. Uh, All of Paul's epistles were written later than that. And so... uh, and so all of these things are are going on. Uh, James goes about this uh, goes about this letter in, in a different kind of way. Um, While the letter has a clear kind of epistolary purpose, meaning it's got a very uh, obvious and structured aim to teach something specific, uh, that specific something is the nature of authentic faith, while it has this clear epistolary purpose, James goes about that purpose uh, in a much more poetic way than all of the other New Testament epistles, all right? All the other New Testament letters. Um, I think it's best to see the book of James as a collection of long-form proverbs. It's going to sound very similar uh, to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, except James is going to spell out those Proverbs with much more detail. Uh, and so uh, James is going to use an incredibly large amount of illustrations and word pictures to get his point across. And that's going to become increasingly more clear as we get into our text today. Welcome to the mother load, All right. This is where most of James's. Well, think of it this way, and think of it this way, and he paints all these different word pictures. We're going to get the line share of that today, all right? Um, now, a handful of years before this letter was the first kind of real flare-up of persecution in the early church. And uh, we're told about that in Acts chapter 8. The, uh, Saul, a Pharisee named Saul, who eventually uh, becomes a Christian uh, and, you know, and does all these great things. Before he met Jesus, or maybe before Jesus met him, all right, he was doing some damage. Right? He was causing a lot of problems. And we're told in Acts chapter 8 that everybody scatters out away. Everybody flees the city of Jerusalem except for the apostles. And so these Jewish background uh, Christians scatter into all these significantly less Jewish background places. Uh, The churches are started, the gospel is preached, and the Gentiles, non-Jewish background people, the Gentiles, begin to hear the gospel and come to saving faith in Jesus. It's an incredible story. But now we have a new problem to deal with, right? We need a clear definition between what is distinctly Christian and what is just kind of culturally and religiously Jewish. Those aren't the same thing. What, are, what parts of Jewish custom and ceremonial law change now that Jesus, the long-promised Jewish Messiah, has come and accomplished all that he was promised to come and accomplish? Now, that massive question gets an equally massive answer in A.D. 49, in an event we call the Jerusalem Council. That plays out in Acts chapter 15. All right? But if this letter is written before that, well, then that means that this is still a very, very active public debate. Lots of people have opinions, and in this letter, I believe, James is wading in to that debate. He's got some things things to say about it, and he's got people in his audience who think that the entirety of the Jewish law is still binding on God's people, and he's got some other people in his audience uh, who, who, who think that absolutely none of the Jewish commands are still binding on God's people, and the truth is, they're both wrong. They're both very wrong. The law keepers in the crowd misunderstand what Jesus came to accomplish on their behalf and all the law dismissers in the crowd misunderstand why Jesus came to accomplish it. And the truth is, those that think that keeping the law is something within their own power to make happen, well, James says that whoever tries to keep the law but fails in only one point of it is guilty of failing the whole thing. Meaning, if you're going to try to please God with law keeping, okay, go ahead. But the standard is perfection. How are you doing on that? It's either perfection or you lose. You want to be a law keeper? Go ahead. Have fun with that. Good luck. But then those who believe that faith and works are somehow mutually exclusive things, that, that as long as you believe the correct things about the gospel and believe the correct things, doctrinally speaking, then who cares what your life looks like? They're disconnected. Why would that matter? You know, James says that, that faith apart from works is useless to actually save you, meaning that regardless of what comes out of your mouth, Anyone whose faith does not produce a life of actions and postures consistent with that faith doesn't actually know God. And so for James, two massive things are simultaneously true. One, you cannot, and the word is cannot, earn righteousness before God. You just don't have the legs for that. But also, two, those who have been declared righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus will always begin to look more and more the part. And if they don't, well, there's sufficient cause to doubt the faith that they publicly claim. So that's where we left things off a couple of weeks ago. James advocating for a living faith as opposed to what he calls a dead faith, a lifeless faith. So you ready to start digging into chapter 3? Good. All right. James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bring his whole body, or able also to, bring, to bridle, sorry, that's the word, able also to bridle his whole body. Oh, man, those those line breaks are weird in this Bible. Okay, all right. So right on the heels of James's kind of living faith versus dead faith argument, uh, he now gives a warning. It seems to those who have aspirations to be seen as teachers. All right, he's talking about teachers in the church. Now, there's an important layer here that may not be immediately clear to everybody reading this for the first time because because of the dating of this letter remember early to mid 40s uh this is early enough in church history that they're still kind of hammering out the different offices and positions in the church especially things like elders and deacons right now uh, you got the apostles still hanging around but they're mostly kind of uh, clustered in one place you, in, in the city of jerusalem right and then now everybody's kind of been spread out um into all of these different places, uh, and you got the creation of the deacon office. That happens as early as Acts chapter six, several years before this. Are uh, some would call them proto deacons. There's some weirdness in between what we think is uh, their first appearance and what we think is their second appearance. And so a lot of people think that they've shift function and, and some things in that time period. Uh, but whatever the case, we get the kind of first look at who deacons are as, as like in the early 30s, like a year or two after the formation of the church. That's pretty early on. But that's not the case for elders. The first instance we see of elders in the church happens way later than that, all the way in, in Acts chapter 11 seemingly about the same time period as this letter. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't exist before that. I believe they did. We just have no clear record of that. Jewish background Christians would have inherited that model from the synagogue. But you've got to remember, the church isn't predominantly Jewish background anymore. So there's some weirdness here. There's a little bit of a power vacuum going on here. And teacher, quote-unquote, was a position that all of the aspirationally-minded folks in the crowd could aim after. Could go chasing. Stop me if you've heard this one before, but when leadership is unclear, highly opinionated people sometimes rise up to try to give their opinion. You've never seen that happen, have you? And usually, they're incredibly confident in themselves, right? Even when they're very, very wrong. James sees this going on, and he says, hey now, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but That's a burden you may not actually want to put on your shoulders. That's a burden that you may not actually want on you. Why not? Well, because teachers will be judged with what he calls a greater strictness. You better stop and think for a moment before you you go claiming titles for yourself because that title comes with some baggage that you may not actually want. We who teach, James says, he puts himself in this category. We who teach will be judged differently than everyone else. So is this some kind of double standard for judging then you got You got two tiers, everyone else, and then the leaders. Is that what he's talking about? Well, we've been pointing out throughout this series now that James seems to use this phrase, "My brothers," for a couple of different purposes uh, one of those purposes it seems is to show that the disconnect that we often have in our own heads between the normal people and the leaders isn't actually a disconnect it's something false that we've brought to the table um, it's a false divide he uses that term again here my brothers right both groups let me say it clearly both groups leaders and non-leaders are sinners in need of a savior. Both groups, leaders and non-leaders, have no hope of escaping God's wrath except for the death of Jesus to atone for their sin. And both groups, leaders and non-leaders, are fully dependent upon the righteousness of Jesus accounted to them to stand holy before a holy God. Both groups desperately need that. So let me say it as clearly as it can be said. There are not, I repeat, not two tiers of righteousness, but... That does not mean, that does not mean that words and actions will not be judged. And It does not mean that the words and actions of the righteous will not be judged. See, over and over and over again in the New Testament, the warning is given that judgment is coming for all. For all. Those who stand on their own man-made righteousness will be judged according to their own man-made righteousness. And those who stand on the righteousness graciously given to them by, the, by Jesus, by the grace of Jesus, will also be judged. And on that day, sometimes people differentiate that day with a capital D, the day, the Bible's clear that every thought and every word and every action will be laid bare. It will be revealed made known, and it will be measured against the infinite righteousness of God. Church, a proper biblical understanding of the judgment of God is not that the Christian doesn't have anything to worry about. A proper biblical understanding of the judgment of God is that the Christian has clung with everything in them to the only effectual thing that can be clung to in that moment, the grace and sufficient work of Jesus on their behalf according to the Apostle James, teachers in the church will be judged with a greater strictness than everybody else. On that day, they will be judged with a closer scrutiny than everybody else gets. But, but why would that be the case? It's because what comes out of their mouth matters. What comes out of their mouth has a direct impact on everyone else by their words, by the words of teachers, people will better understand the gospel or they will misunderstand the gospel. By their words, people will have have a better understanding of who God is and his character or their understanding of his character will be veiled and skewed. And by their words, people will be led to hate their sin and walk away from it into freedom. Or they will be led to love their sin and embrace their sin to their demise. Teachers in the church carry a far larger impact than any average person when it comes to what's coming out of their mouth. And because of that reality, we're told that God will judge those teachers with a greater scrutiny. Still saved by the blood of Jesus alone, nothing changes that. But when it comes time to stand and give an account, God's going to have some thoughts that he'd like to share with them. When the time comes to measure all of the things, God's got some stuff he wants to talk about. Now we did or did not faithfully lead his people. Jesus, says, you sure you want that on your shoulders? You really want to sign up for that? You understand exactly what it is that you're saying yes to? I don't know, how about, just theory, how about we slow down and not rush to piling up a bunch of teachers in the church? Because you better be ready to own that responsibility with the full knowledge that God is taking copious notes. Because last time I checked, I don't know if you thought through this yourself, The teachers are sinners too. We stumble in many ways, James says. Teachers will fail. It's not an if, it's not a, it's not a maybe. Teachers will fail in sin. You want to know how I know that? Because they're sinners just like you are. As much a sinner as anybody else in the room. They need the sufficient work of Jesus on their behalf as much as anyone else does. James tells his audience that rushing to be seen as the teacher is a dangerous game to play. Because you're you're not just affecting yourself anymore. you're, You're owning the responsibility of everyone else's spiritual understanding. You ready for that? And if even the faithful teachers are going to be judged with a greater scrutiny, like just, just follow the logic problem out, what do you think God's going to have to say to the unfaithful teachers? Ooh. Regardless of whatever following they've managed to you know, build up for themselves in this world, regardless of whatever accolades they've, uh, or profit they've, I believe, stolen, regardless of however successful they've managed to fly under the wolf detection radar, the Bible's incredibly clear. It will not be a good day for them be a very bad, bad day for them. But that's, you know, that's a warning for kind of a smaller group of people. I mean, sure, it's a clear warning for instructions for teachers, but what about everybody else, right? I mean, sure, the words of teachers matter, obviously, but what about all the non-teacher types in the crowd? Does what, what's coming out of our mouth matter? Well, James thinks it does. Look at verse 3. So if you remember back at the end of uh, chapter 1, uh, James gave a real quick kind of overview of where he was going in the rest of the letter. Uh, he gave three larger categories of, of things that an authentic faith must necessarily change in the lives and the postures of God's people. One of those three things, if you, if you don't remember, one of those three things was how we speak. To people, around people, about people. All right? We said back then that you need to forget the naughty word list, set that aside, not because it's, you know, the naughty word list isn't an issue, but because it's a symptom of a much larger disease that begins in the heart. And that disease has a hundred different other symptoms that are also equally an issue. And to worry about the naughty list and then leave all the other stuff, it's kind of missing the gigantic point, right? But back then... James gave that real quick overview, categorical overview for how we speak. And now, well, guys, he's ready to to dig into it with some more detail. He wants to put the boots on the ground and get into the messy stuff. So in chapter 3, he gives a couple of short illustrations of small things affecting giant change. A bit in a horse's mouth and the rudder on a ship. Um, If horses and ships somehow fall outside of the Venn diagram of stuff you're interested in, and know a lot about. Let me try to explain to you what James just is talking about here. Uh, we talked about bits and bridles um, back at the end of chapter 1. I think it was about a couple of months ago now. Uh, and if you, you, you're like completely in the dark on all the equipment that you need to own, if you want to own a horse, uh, the, the metal bit in the horse's mouth, that's, that's the bit. that the metal bar, right? All right? And so uh, you stick it in the horse's mouth. It puts leverage on certain places in the mouth. And you can use that leverage to direct the horse. It's so effective that a lot of animal rights groups think it's a terrible idea. The reason is because he who controls the bit controls the horse. They don't like that part, right? But it's true. He who controls the bit controls the horse. But then James tosses another word picture into the pile. A ship's rudder. And you have no idea at all how much time I wasted this week (laughs) learning about rudders. I read blogs, I googled pictures, I watched at least half a dozen like long-form YouTube videos about the subject. I completely dorked out on rudders this week. And you'll be happy to know I've got some examples to show you this morning. All right, (laughs) can I have slide number one, please? Hey everybody, that's a ship's rudder. Look at it. That's a really, really big ship. Like a really, really, really big ship. That propeller's taller than a person. Um, And then that wavy thing on the back, if you're completely unaware, that's, that's a rudder. And, and for all the really smart people in the crowd, uh, you'll be happy to know that this type of rudder is called a semi-balanced rudder with a fixed half skeg. You're welcome. I learned what that is. There are a couple different types of rudders, a number of different types of rudders that you can go with depending upon the size of the boat and the application that you need, uh, the speed that you normally operate at, how maneuverable you need to be at low speeds because you're coming in and out of ports, all these kinds of things, right? So there's lots and lots of different types of rudders. Uh, however, uh, they've evolved a lot over the years. And so I've got a second slide to show you. Back in James's day, rudders would have looked more like this. See the giant oar on the back? You get a strong guy to maneuver and manage the giant oar because it took a lot of strength. The biggest guy on the boat was the the rudder guy. Here's the deal. If you were to break ship down and lay all of the parts out on the ground, and you were asked somebody who was completely ignorant of the subject to come in and pick out five or ten of the most important parts of the ship, that rudder ain't making the cut. Somebody who's completely ignorant of the subject. There's lots of things I would pick before the rudder. It's this unassuming thing. It's easy to overlook as important. But the person who knows the ship, to the sailor, the guy who engineers things and has been on the boat and knows how the boat works, that rudder is incredibly important. It's obvious how important it is. James says that that you may be inclined to think that what's coming out of your mouth isn't really that important. You may think it's not a big deal. You You may think it's small and unassuming, but really only the ignorant think that. Those who have no idea what it is they're talking about at the end of the day your tongue is steering the ship your tongue is steering the ship and in the first half of verse five james says that when used correctly the tongue can be the instigator of incredibly wonderful things i mean think about all the awesome stuff our words can do right We can praise and celebrate our Creator. We can express love for our spouse and our family and our friends. We can write poems and songs and literature, tapping into the deep God given things inside of us. We can be humorous. We can inspire action. We can defend the cause of the weak. We can philosophize and critique that which needs correction. Man, words can be awesome, words can be amazing. When used correctly, the tongue can be the instigator of incredibly wonderful things. But We all stumble in many ways, right? So in the back half of verse 5, James offers up a couple more illustrations. It says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, Setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Two pictures, a raging forest fire and a stain that bleeds into every corner. It's not forest fire season yet, but we all know it's coming, right? No matter how much we hate to see it on the news, it's going to be on the news all over the place in just a few months. That's all it's going to take. Here's what you need to know about forest fires. Intent. Intent isn't really all that important. However it started, doesn't really matter. Whether it's a fire that's produced by a lightning strike or, or someone's carelessness or even if it's an attempt to, to do like a controlled burn and then it got out of hand and they couldn't control it like they thought they could control it. Regardless of how the fire started, what you've got now is a forest fire. Right? Maybe it was just a slip of the tongue something you didn't actually intend. Maybe maybe I don't know, maybe you intended it just a little bit, but you didn't think it would be that big of a deal. Or maybe you're trying to manage the situation and figured out really quickly that it was bigger than you and you lost control. Intent doesn't matter what you're staring at is a full-fledged forest fire. And it's going to cause far more damage not only than what you intended. But also what you could ever actually fix. Ever repair on your own. I think we've all been in places, at least least I know I have. I think we've all been in places where our tongue created all kinds of trouble for us. And for others. And for the thing we loved and tried to protect Not only does the tongue carry the potential for incredibly wonderful things, but the tongue also carries just as much potential for incredibly wicked things. I mean, think about all the terrible stuff our words can do. We can praise and celebrate ourselves rather than our Creator. We can express vitriol and hatred for our spouse and our family and our friends. We can write poems and songs and literature that embrace deeply sinful things in us. We can misuse humor for irreverence and we can incite sinful action and we can demean the cause of the weak and we can philosophize and critique that which rightly deserves celebration instead. Man, our words can be terrible, right? Haven't we all seen that? Haven't we all participated in that? When used incorrectly, the tongue can be an instigator of incredibly, incredibly wicked things. It may be a small part of the body, but its stain bleeds into every corner, James says. So so what do we do, right? What what do we do? I mean, is this a a simple matter of trying harder to use our tongues for more righteous purposes? Well, James got a thought about that as well. Look at verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird and re- of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> James says that people have figured out how to tame every class and category of animal. And and, and James flexes his Jewishness here. He uses the same categories of animals as you find in Genesis 1 in the creation account. Man has figured out how to tame beasts and birds and reptiles and fish, but man has clearly not yet figured out how to tame his own stupid tongue. Right? In fact, according to James, it can't be done. It's impossible. So what do we do with that? Right. I mean, are we left to just throw up our hands and stop trying to pursue good things? I mean, are we, are we simply to, to dismiss the, the sinfulness of our tongues because, I mean, you know, there's nothing really we can do about it? Is that the game? A long time ago, a guy named Augustine wrote that all man cannot tame his tongue. God can. God containment. That while you're not strong enough to accomplish it on your own, God very much is strong enough. And the consistent message of this letter, the consistent message from James is that an authentic faith will grow more and more and more and more consistent with God's good design for you. Including what comes out of your mouth. And if it doesn't, that ought to be taken as a sign of a significant problem. Look at verse 9. With it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce uh, figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James piles up several more illustrations here, all to point out that the nature of something uh, is always consistent with the fruit of that something. Right? It doesn't matter how much you wish it to be so, you're never going to get olives from a fig tree. Figs just don't have that in them. I know we live in a world that's increasingly, seems like more and more and more people fall victim to the lie that truth is somehow some subjective thing but there's a reason why farmers never fall victim to that lie you want to know why because they walk outside and see it in front of them once you step outside of intellectual ivory towers and back into the real world you figure out pretty quick that truth don't play Truth is truth. You plant corn, you're going to get corn. Wishful thinking has never, in all of human history, resulted in a corn seed producing a wheat harvest. That's not how it works. You plant corn, you get corn. You turn your sinful tongue loose, you're going to get sinful things out of it. Wishful thinking has never produced righteous words. James has been ripping off Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount all letter long. And so this this isn't new. Jesus already said something exactly like this in Matthew 7. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits." James and Jesus both are pretty clear about this. What something truly is can be measured. And it can be measured by the fruit that it produces. Can someone with an authentic faith simultaneously bless the Lord and curse others? James has an answer. No. They can't. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So what do we do? just hypothetically speaking I would never be guilty of this myself what do we do if we find ourselves in a place this morning where we've got a seemingly endless list of sinful things that have come out of our mouth what do we do if we could recount moment after moment after moment where our tongue was used for wickedness what do we do if we've lost count of those moments if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, I think James would have us respond with repentance. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. We respond with repentance. I I think the right response for God's people is to simultaneously beg God to change our hearts on this, to change our nature on this, but then also put in proper restraints on our tongues until the nature is producing a better fruit. Not because you can white-knuckle your way into righteousness, just the opposite. Because we understand the potential for good and evil that dwells in our tongue. And we dare not mishandle it. Our response every single week is to repent of sin and to lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And, and this week, man, I think he's showing us that he wants every part of us. Even the parts that we think don't matter so much. That Maybe he should just, you know, overlook because it's such a small, insignificant thing. Nah, no, he wants every ounce of you. To withhold the parts that we think are less important, unassuming, the parts that we think shouldn't matter all that much is pretty ignorant actually. What's every ounce? So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing another song. We do that to give you some space to respond in your own kind of way each week, but prevent you from rushing out of here on, off to the next thing, but to dwell deeply on this. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How how can you respond? I think James would argue the same thing repentance. Not simply for an untamed tongue, but for an untamed heart as well. Um, you cannot clean up your language enough to make an infinitely holy God go, I like that guy. That's not how it works. But Jesus is incredibly clear. That what comes out of, your, out of your mouth, out of you, is a pretty good indicator of what's already inside of you. And according to the Bible, what's inside of us by default is rebellion against God. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are separated relationally from God. And that we are all owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls that, that punishment hell. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with an incredibly great love. That even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God makes us alive through Christ by his grace. How does he do that? The eternal son of God put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that I can't live and you can't live and we all can't live. And he lived the sinless life in perfect obedience to the Father. And he went to the cross as a sinless substitute to die in our place to make payment for sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. So that all those who call on him in faith would be reconciled to him by his grace. You can do that today. You can call on Him in faith. And I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be, in a moment, I'm going to be down front here. You want to talk? Let's talk. I'll just show you what that faith looks like. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way today. Maybe, you know, you've been here for a little bit and God's been calling you to finally make this your church home. We believe that God has a home church for every one of His people and we want to help you get connected to that. So come talk to me. Maybe uh, you, for whatever reason you've been following Jesus for a while, but you've never been obedient to His command to be baptized. Let's talk about that too. Time to take a step and do something about that. Or maybe God's calling you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here, that place that doesn't know it very well yet. You know, it's time to make that calling public. I don't know. Whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for weighty words about what comes out of our mouth. I'm guilty of overlooking the rudder. I am guilty more times than I'd like to Make publicly aware of words that do not match the faith I claim. Help me repent well. I need your help even for that. Change my heart on this. Help me walk as you've called me to walk. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you call people into your kingdom today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.